Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Money Is Not Evil podcast, the show where you will be inspired to change your life. So let's talk about your mother, okay? Sure. <laughs> then we'll talk about how you're Mr. Wonderful. I've tried to get my wife to call me Mr. Wonderful. I'm not having much luck with that. But do you really literally mean that if you are in business, you have to be willing to fire your mom? You know, it's true, you do. Because in the end, when you create a business and you start one, many entrepreneurs in this audience will understand this comment, your allegiance has to be to the business first. Because without that, all the good things that you want to do are going to fail. And so as your business grows and you make decisions about individual people, you can't let your emotion get in the way of what you really need to do, which is to drive success of the business. And so the minute you get your first customer, you now become number two. The minute you get your first investor, now you're number three. The minute you hire your second employer, you're number four. It's still your business, but now you know who you have to serve. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs that fail don't understand that you're always serving someone, a shareholder, a customer, the business, and if you lose sight of that by letting your emotions get in the way, and this often happens, it certainly happened to me in early days, many people hire their friends. They start a company with their friend or with their brother. Good way to end a friendship. Or you're, it's a family business. And very often, nepotism is what kills the golden goose because very often the better manager is not your sister, brother, uncle, cousin, whatever. And I live through this all the time in the companies that I'm an investor in. I have 32 portfolio companies now. I watch this happen every day. And I don't let emotion get in the way of the true pursuit of what matters, the success of the business. Whether it's your mother or not, let's take it away from the idea of firing your mother. But just because it, it, it sort of is a conversational thread that I can pick up on, you've had to fire people. Yeah. How do you do it? I'm sure people here, it is the thing they probably dread doing the most. Yes. And How do you do it fairly without inflicting undue hurt? The key to ending a relationship is to explain to the person that you're doing it to why it's happening. Because they won't learn anything from it unless you do that. And in my companies, particularly ones where I have a control position, I do that myself. It's the hardest thing to do. I'll, I'll make two comments about it, and I see this happen with weak managers all the time. The moment you realize that that person isn't right for the job is the time to take them out of it. it because it's not fair to them. It's not about you. It's not fair to them and the people they're working with and the team that they're part of. The, the biggest challenge, and I generally find this at, at, at sort of the $10 million sales rule, Many people have to change in going from 10 to 25 million in sales. It's the natural Darwinian forces of business. And if you don't have the balls 
to make those cuts and you can't deal with it, you're the wrong leader. In other words, the skills that it takes to go from zero to 10 million yeah. are very different from the skills it takes to go from 10 million to 25, from 25 I've, to... I've, after decades of investing in companies that go through those transitions, it's extremely difficult and it takes different skill sets and you have to be able to you know, work with people. The, the, the key is you don't want bad karma in business. When, when I terminate somebody, I make sure they get a fantastic package. I make sure they get counseling. I make sure that we do everything we can to find them another job, just not with us, because they're the wrong person. How, what are, take me back to someone you've fired that, that comes to mind. Uh, how did you know they weren't the right person for the job? What was the telltale? Or what are some of the telltales that you have seen over your years that tell you this person isn't right? I have to let her or him go. That's a good question, and I'll, and I'll answer it with an um, analogy of fact. I carry two phones with me. This small one uh, is only known by my family and very, very close friends. And when it rings, I'll always answer it because it has to do with something going on with my kids or my family or my, my brother or whatever. This phone, this larger one, um, probably 10,000 people have this number. I'm a believer that if you are an entrepreneur or a major shareholder of a company, every single customer should know if they have a problem who they can call. And when I say this, this concept of access. In other words, many managers think, well, you know, if I give my number out to my employees, they may call me. <laughs> and, and, and the truth is, you want to hear from them. You want to hear the bad news first. And what I found is the more people I give this number to, the less it rings. I tell them simply, look, I want you to have this access because I respect you and I want you to know that you can come to me. And in that trust, I find that most people never use it. it. This thing does not ring as much as my family phone does. But when it rings, it's a big deal. And the reason I know it's time to terminate somebody in one of my companies is when my customers and my shareholders call me three times about that person. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's always the same. Mm -hmm. It's always the same. When a customer's complaining about a CEO or a head of sales or the head of R&D or employees are not happy, and I keep getting that phone call, I get on the plane and I get my whack and stick out because there's something wrong. And, you, and no matter how you try and fix it, the market's talking to you. You are, you have to make that decision. It never gets easy, but... And you do it personally. I do it personally. You do it face-to-face. -face. In the companies, I have 51% equity. Mm -hmm. I do it personally. I don't do it when I'm a 3% shareholder because that's not my job. But mm -hmm. in, in the O shares, I'm a 50% shareholder in. If I have a problem with somebody in there, I take care of it myself. Mm -hmm. I care a lot about that company because I own half of it. As you look at all of the businesses that come across the, the palette of, of Shark Tank, and there are, what, 100,000 applicants this time yeah. around? Yeah, yeah. 100,000. Who does the initial winnowing? People at, uh, at the production company or...? or? You know, I, I have to give credit to the producers now because if you think about the first 36 months of Shark Tank, the first three seasons, nobody watched it. 
I mean, maybe a cat or a dog somewhere. <laughs> but, and, and then in season four, a fundamental change occurred. Many people don't know this. Previous to that, the producers took a 5% equity stake or 2.5% of free cash flow in perpetuity from any company that came on the air and got airtime. It was a product integration idea. And the Sharks, most of us said, this isn't working because we can't get real companies to come on the show because they have shareholder agreements and they can't just issue equity to anybody. Mm -hmm. And so when the decision was made, and I'll give credit... So that rule was an impediment. It was a huge impediment and it occurred... We used to get what we call turbo basters. In other words, a woman came on once in season three, maybe it was two, and she had a piece of paper with a turkey baster on it and a battery taped to it. And she said, this is a million dollars. This is a million dollar turbo baster. And I looked at it and said, this is fucked. I mean, <laughs> like, th this isn't working. We're never going to get anything going here. And... That is known as the turbo-baster problem. And we went and fixed that in, in year four and took away all the covenants on equity and all that stuff. And all of a sudden, that's the year the show went geometric, we got incredible entrepreneurs, amazing deals, venture-backed, angel-backed, you name it, and the show went geometric. But the key there is the producers over those first three years became very hip to figuring out how to work with VCs on which deals to bring. What were to the bring to the set, to bring, bring to, to the you set. guys. What entrepreneurs, what was their history? How did they work on television? And so the most valuable asset inside Shark Tank are those 120-plus producers and PAs and assistants and showrunners that actually look at the, those 100,000 videos and say, that one and that person and that one. And somehow, when we get there, which we will on June 13th this year, It'll just sizzle like an isotope when we show up. So how long, I think the audience might be interested to hear, obviously each one of the pitches is, is heavily edited down to the, to the best parts. Yes. And, and for it's, it's edited down for narrative, it's edited down for conflict and collision of ideas. Uh, how much time, so it's how long is an average segment, and how much time do you actually spend interrogating the pitcher? And that's a good question, and I'll tell you, and this is probably one of the most important lessons I teach. I teach graduating cohorts now um, in engineering schools to try and convince a third of them to start their own business. Places like Notre Dame, MIT, getting those entrepreneurs out of those engineering classes is important just to be globally competitive. But I always tell them about my Shark Tank experience after seeing thousands of pitches for all these years. And I... Whenever I talk about Shark Tank, these are the three attributes you find in every successful pitch by the minute. Let me give you the time. <laughs> the ones that work, the ones that get a check, does not determine the outcome of the business. These are the ones that get a check, that actually start their journey funded on Shark Tank, that go into the ecosphere of Shark Tank, that get followed every year by all the networks, that get all the daytime television and all that stuff because they got an investor. In every case, they're able to articulate the idea in 90 seconds or less. Every single time they were able to say, and most of them are 60 seconds, they say, look, I'm from Cohasset, Massachusetts. I put cupcakes in a jar and I fed X to people. I get it. Mm -hmm. The ones that ramble on and can't get the, the idea out and it's still 10 minutes later and we're still wondering, what are they talking about? They never get funded. So that's number one. That only is, is 90 seconds. 
The next segment is the part of discovery where they explain to you, and I generally only invest in teams now, um, I like the yin and yang of two partners that bring different skill sets. But they explain over, let's say, a 10-minute period why they're the right people to execute the business plan. And this ends up, ends up being very important because when those two come together, you can start to see, I can see Cuban over on my right starting to make noise and Barbara starting to get excited over here because, wait a minute, these guys know what they're doing. I love the idea. They know what they're doing. They have a high probability of success. But here's the killer, and this is where you can spend an hour, two hours. And sometimes you do. We do. There are some legendary cases that have gone past two hours. By now, there's a competition going on. There's going to be an investment. It's just who's going to do who's it. Who's going to do it? And who's going to get structure? it? And what are the terms? But then the discovery and the one where they fall, I've seen so many presentations crash and burn here. The numbers. They don't know their numbers. And if you show up in front of me on Shark Tank and you get past phase one and two and we spend an hour and you don't know what the gross margins are, you don't know what the break-even else is, you don't know how many competitors you have, you don't know how fast the market is growing, if you don't have the answer to all those questions, I should put you in hell in perpetuity. You should burn <laughs> in hell because you got there. You're on the carpet. You're there about to start your journey and you don't know your numbers? Immediate execution. I mean, that's unbelievably stupid. But that's the one. And that's do, the do many who, who, who get that far, do it they fall there? It happens more often than you would believe mm -hmm. because the confidence of the investor, you can see it just like, like the soul of a body drifting out. That's exactly what's happening. I thought, I can't believe this. These morons don't know their numbers. And I just, I feel it's my moral obligation to send them to hell. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. I mean... It just and So that is very important, and that discovery can take a long time. When you're confident they know their business model and they're the right people to execute the plan and you get the opportunity, that's two hours. Now, the editors have to cut that down to eight minutes, and they've got to find those moments that define what that deal's all about, and they become masters of that too. I mean, I watched Shark Tank just to see how they edited it because I was there, and I went, that deal was two and a half hours, and I, I just... They're amazing editors. They're really good. How do you get it down to that to that level? That is really their their skill. Uh, you talked. Uh, we talked last night um, about the success rates that you have found in your portfolio companies, and the fact that in terms of return of capital, who does best? Yeah. So this happened to me, um, and it's got quite a bit of press lately, but it's a fact. 2014, what happens is when you, most sharks now have their own VC firms. So you set up a company, mine's called O'Leary Ventures, you staff it, you bring in interns during the shoot so you can have a bunch of people doing due diligence. Mine's run by a guy named Alex Kenjeev, who is an IP lawyer from Boston, MBA, Russian poet. Very strange dude. But, but he, he, he is a, a master at this. And so... At the end of 14, we said, let's do a going concern audit. We had about 27 portfolio positions then in private businesses. Because the auditor said, look, some of this stuff's going to have to be written off. I mean, you, you don't get 100% success. Everybody knows that. So they said, let us do a study. We'll determine which ones you're either going to have to fund or take to zero on a mark-to-market -market basis. But we'll also try and find for you, because you're doing so many. I mean, 27 positions is more than most VC companies have. Today, I have 32 on the books. And they said, let's try and figure out what the common attributes are of the ones that are successful in returning capital. 
And lo and behold, about two months later, and I'd never noticed this because I wasn't looking, but not some of my returns, 100% came from companies either owned or run by women. Now, what... And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, you know, trying to be, start gender warfare here. I don't care about that. I would give money to a turtle if I could get a return from it. It doesn't matter to me. But the point is, what is it about, because um, the, 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 the companies are generally, at the small end, $5 million in sales to the high end, maybe three fifty. Sarah Mangalas at um, Honey Fund's doing about three eighty of origination, so $380 million. And that's another company run by women that's been a monster success for me. So the point is, what do they? What attributes do they have that are different than their than their, you know, compatriot men managers? And I'd argue that um, that old adage: if you want something done, give it to a busy woman. Time management skills in small cap companies, remarkable. Number two, um, setting goals that are achievable on a quarterly basis. Because when when companies achieve their goals, the morale lifts up. The propensity to succeed again is higher. And so, do they set more realistic goals? Yeah, they do, because the guys are swinging for the fences all the time and setting ridiculous goals that they don't achieve and then saying, well, we did okay, we, we did 50% of our goal. That is not the same as achieving a goal and succeeding it, so I'd argue that's better. But I think the real key is risk mitigation. I find that the use of capital, which is always scarce in a growing company, is better managed by women who diversify the risk the only thing that matters is the return of capital. And, you know, I'm now gathering these companies together. We did last year's at, 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 um, uh, in Nantucket. I brought all the companies into one place because somebody, it was kind of a funny story, somebody came on Shark Tank and said, you know, will you marry me, Mr. Wonderful? And I thought, well, that's different. <laughs> and then it aired and somebody in, in, in Boston figured out that you could get for 12 hours from the governor of Massachusetts the right to marry somebody. And they got me that, and I married somebody on Nantucket. It was very cool. But we also got all our companies there at the wedding. And I had the guys talking to the, to the women saying, why are they returning me so much money and you guys aren't? Because well, like, we're agnostic to geography here. We're agnostic to sector. We're agnostic to product. What did the guys say? I said... <laughs> They said, well, you know, you have to think long-term, Kevin. I said, bullshit. Look at this. Look at the returns here. What are you doing? And so I'm very, um, I'm an activist now to try and, and, and translate these success features from these companies. And I'm going on the road in a couple of months starting to bring some of them around. I, I recently shot something with Ariane Huffington and brought Sarah from Honey Funds there because I want to celebrate their success, because I, I think they're getting a bad rap. We need more women in management positions all over America. They're doing a great job. And, and this is not about, this is about making money, my favorite thing. Yeah. So, so, so with that in mind, do you, either on Shark Tank or in other uh, uh, parts of your, your far-flung far -flung ventures, why don't you only invest with women-run companies, or do you? Well, I, I obviously, if I had two options, and I had a, a women management team and a men in the same product category, you would I would, to I the would skew because just the success I've had. I mm -hmm. talk to Alex about this all the time. Mm -hmm. I said, look at these returns. Why aren't we just giving it to me? And I, you'll see a bunch of deals this year I've, I've done with, with women teams. But every once in a while, something comes along like Love Pop, which 
which is a 3D card. Um, two engineers, marine engineers that made attack boats. I mean, if you're smuggling drugs and they're chasing you, it's in a boat that these two guys designed with ordnance on it. They can blow you up and all this stuff. And then they go to Harvard. Then they go to MIT. They're engineers. And then one day they say, let's make love pop cards. So these are 3D <laughs> cards. That's a left turn. It is a left turn. And I saw their pitch on Shark Tank last year, and I thought, I must be dreaming. Like, why would two guys from MIT and Harvard make greeting cards? And I listened to their story and how they're gonna, they believe that everything is going to come back to the old ways where you write a card. And they were designing these beautiful cards that when you open them up, they're 3D and they're all laser cut by their designs because they're designers. And then they're, they're cut in Vietnam and, fit, and FedEx back. Anyways, the business is on fire. Um, two guys, so there I invested in two because I didn't see any women making 3D cards like this. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's um, you know, Shark Tank is a, is a consumer goods and services platform. That's what it is. And so if you have a product that's already in, in distribution, you get on Shark Tank, your sales are going up 30,000%. I want to turn to, to, the, to the, the whole topic of fusing social purpose with business purpose, because mm -hmm. I know you have some thoughts about that. But I also want, we were at dinner last night, and, um, and, and you sell your wine through QVC. Yeah. How important a selling tool is Q QVC? It feels to me like, I'm not sure whether it is necessarily applicable to the entrepreneurs in this audience, but it is a truly powerful tool. Yeah, I, I was introduced to QVC from Lori, who came on the show a few seasons ago as the queen of QVC, and I never believed in it, uh, until I realized, um, and I tried it once, I went on there to sell um, O'Leary Wines, which was a Shark Tank deal, and in three minutes and 40 seconds sold a million dollars of wine. And I went, whoa. Because you're, you're sitting there with a little thing in your ear, an IFB, and the producer is saying to you, okay, we've got 100,000, we've got 200,000. I'm thinking to myself, what is he talking about? <laughs> but they've got millions of people watching this and making decisions live. And so um, it's completely changed my mind. Their model is incredibly interested, and they're very sophisticated about how the product is presented, how you present. And so... I've taken this whole thing to a new level. Laura used to be the queen of QVC. Now she remains the queen, but I am the king. And so <laughs> the rules of the monarchy are very strict. She must walk three steps behind me and not speak unless I speak to her first. <laughs> so you can imagine how tough next season Shark Tank's going to be. It's going to be brutal. All right, so let's get, let's get to the question, which I, which I know we talked about at, uh, at, at Iconic in Washington uh, at the end of last year. Uh, there is... Uh, a growing sense, I think, maybe partly driven by the, the business interests or the consumer interests of. If you're loving this episode, please leave a review and comments down below. The millennials, uh, that it is part of a business's calling to either give something back, to do something good, to have a bigger social purpose or impact than merely to make money for the founders and the shareholders. 
It's a huge debate in America. It's a huge debate in this room. It's a huge debate in every graduating cohort of engineers in America. It's a, it's a global debate going on. Now, I think there are some issues here, and I'll explain what they are. The backbone of success of, of our country in capitalism and the most noble thing you can do in your life, in my opinion, is to start a business and create a job. There is nothing more noble than that. But when you take on that journey, you also, after you hire your first employee and have your first customer and your first shareholder, is you have a responsibility of sustainability, of the business. Because you're now servicing customers, you have employees that, were, that actually, are, that you're responsible to maintain their jobs, their standard of living, their ability to have a family comes from you. Now, when you introduce a new mission, because the primary mission of a business is to take care of its customers, its employees, and its shareholders. That is the DNA of business. When all of a sudden you introduce a new cause, and let's just make it generic, we're going to save the world, whatever that means to somebody, you cause a mutation in the DNA of the business. Now, you could say, going to the Darwinian theory, that mutations create success, that you morph into something that's very successful. And there are analogies in business across multiple sectors, shoe companies, other companies that bring a cause into the model, and it's very successful because it's a connection to the customer in a way that's unique. If you can sustain that, you have brought it into the marketing aspect of what you are to your customer. And you've built it into your income statement, and it allows you to remain competitive and raise capital against your competitors, and you found a way to do something that they didn't do. That model, I appreciate, understand, and believe is a wonderful idea because it's clearly the Ben and Jerry model. They cared a lot about their community. But when Ben and Jerry wanted to grow and become a behemoth in the ice cream business, they ran into the ultimate problem of scale, scalability of this. And they don't own it anymore because it was bought by someone who said, well, there's a cost of capital to making ice cream, the cost of protein, the cost of distribution. My question to everybody that pursues this is, is it sustainable enough that you can create a competitive entity that goes beyond your vision. It has to be something that creates a service or good in perpetuity for all of your customers. And what I find very often is people BS themselves. They say to themselves, I'm going to game the system. I'm going to tell everybody that if they buy a pair of socks from me, I'll give a pair to charity. I'll get lots of free press. The buyers at Walmart will want to see me because I'm doing something good. And I'll actually stay in business, even though my costs are twice as high as my competitors. And you know what? So that you've turns... got a problem with that. You've got a well, you problem know why? with Tom I'll tell you why I have a problem with it or Warby Parker, whoever is doing that as part of their business. I have a problem with it because it's bullshit. It's not sustainable. It doesn't work. Those companies are still calling me up saying, I need to raise more money. But don't worry, profitability is right around the corner. No, it isn't. It isn't. The thing to understand about business and society is this. Last year, and part of it comes from right here in Seattle, was the largest amount of capital given back by entrepreneurs in the history of the planet Earth. 
from the profits of their successes of their companies. After the company had paid it back to the shareholders, they turned around and gave it all back. They didn't break the DNA of their business to do that. They created massive successes in Amazon, in Microsoft, in Google, in Facebook. And then they took the profits and paid it forward. And that's where they did it. They didn't make they, it a part exactly. of the they, mission they of the business. They didn't try and save the it, world. Why, is it, why does it matter? Why does it matter whether you uh, are a Tom's shoe company? Very successful. Very successful. They make an, money. An example of a company that actually incorporated into their business model and was able to raise capital and build it in a way that kept them competitive and scaled. Mm -hmm. But what I find is, and this is why I give a big warning sign, is to take the social mission and say it's the primary mission of the business and its DNA has now been more modified and has morphed into something else and make that secondary to the shareholder, the customer, and the employee, that is not a successful model. So it's really, it's a question, am I hearing you say, it's a question of the magnitude of the social mission so that it, it's in its place uh, versus the real mission of the business, which is to take care of the customer, the shareholder, the employee, or is it, is it something different? And you see what I'm saying? In other no, words, no, I get it. Uh, but that, but, but you're, what you're going to find... if I flip it and I say my, my business's mission is to do good in the community and, and give yeah, shoes that, to people... that is a very important mission. It's called charity. Mm -hmm. And... There is a very important aspect of what every entrepreneur, I give the same you percentage give to charity. every year, but I don't confuse that with the mission of my businesses. This is the challenge, and I'm not scared to say this. Business is war. There are competitors, winners, and losers. It's binary. You either make money or you lose it. You need to understand that as an entrepreneur. You have to embrace what that means to you and understand what it means to society. Your job is to make that business successful. It's to steal market share from your competitors. It's to salt the earth they used to walk on. It's to make sure you put them out of business and you achieve success then, and only then, after you have got all of those profits as being a successful business model, you give it back and you pay it forward. That is the model. That's how it works and that's never going to change. I want to bring up the house lights because I can well imagine that some of you in the audience might like a, to take a whack at a shark, right? <laughs> so we have mic runners. I don't. I haven't been in the. I've been on TV, so I haven't seen some of the earlier sessions. Uh, we've got about ten minutes before we're going to break for lunch. Uh, I would merely ask, uh, as you ask questions, would you mind introducing yourself very briefly? Uh, and uh, just say what you do for a living or what company you're starting or work for. Very quick introduction, and please keep your question a question and keep it taut. Go ahead. Hi, uh, my name is Zach Kramer. I run a company called IT Assurance in Portland, Oregon. We do outsourced IT support that doesn't suck. Uh, Kevin, my question for you is how do you make difficult decisions? You always seem very certain of yourself and very certain of the decisions you've made. Can you take us through the process you use to make the hard choices? I listen to my gut. It's not scientific. I've learned over time, and I think every entrepreneur should trust their um, feelings because I've learned every time I don't listen to my gut, I lose money. Every time I say to myself, no, you're wrong about that, I second-guess myself, I lose money. 
You have to listen. Successful entrepreneurs have a spider sense. I really believe that. They know what's right. They know what's wrong. They have to listen to themselves. And it doesn't always work out, but the minute you second-guess yourself, you're screwed. You really are. You, you are no longer a leader. People that follow you into dark places have to trust you, and you have to trust yourself. You. We, we had on uh, one of the prior iconics in Chicago, your fellow shark, Mark Cuban. And one of the things that was very interesting that he said, and he said it um, uh, a couple of times, I, he said basically, I've made lots of mistakes uh, in, in my career. I said, well, what do you do with those mistakes? What are you trying to learn from them? And I said, do you, do you carry your mistakes with you? And he said, no, I cut them off, and I try and learn from them, but I don't let them weigh me down. Yeah, I agree with him, I and mean, we talk about that a lot. The you got to let is, it go. Well, because it's the same as investing. I spend a lot of time investing a lot of capital in, in the public markets and debt markets globally. You make mistakes. It's impossible to make 100% success in every stock you buy. It's the minute you start losing, you've got to take it behind the barn and shoot it. You have mm -hmm. to sell it. Mm -hmm. And you have to realize, I hope I learned from that mistake, but you don't always. I rather invest in entrepreneurs that have had multiple failures before I meet them. I love the sting of failure as a motivational tool for somebody that wants to succeed versus somebody that says to me, well, I've never run a business. This is my, my first turbo baster. I'm showing it to you now. <laughs> and that's... To me, that person isn't ready for prime time. I, lo I love what failure does to your way of thinking. It brings fear into it, and it's great. Do we have a question down here? There went a turbo baster, actually. I think it was, <laughs> that was what it was. Hi, Kevin. My name is Andrea, and I own and operate outpatient therapy clinics for children. And my question is about with making money. I'm all for making money. It's why I'm doing it. My entire staff are all people that are in health services and so the idea of making profit in healthcare to them is a dirty word and I'd be interested to know how you would talk to people that that have that belief that they should be there just to do good not to make money how you would address that interesting question it is an interesting question you find that also in education uh, yes. an area that I was very involved in for a long time there, these two things can be in parallel uh, the, the reason is if you provide great goods and services by hiring people that are very good at what they do, and the reason you can do that is you're growing a successful business, and you're basically reinvesting back in people, what I say is to them, look, people that are concerned, because we were very focused in my case in math and reading scores, and many, many teachers, very good ones in phonetic reading or whatever their, their, their tools are, I would try and hire, and they'd say to me, well, I'm a little uncomfortable about... Um, doing this for profit because you're making millions off Rita Rabbit. And I say, yeah, I am. The rabbit is a very rich rabbit. And the reason you should do this is you're going to help hundreds of thousands of kids around the world. And you're going to help me hire more people like you to do this good work. And we are going to give back, because we were doing a lot of that as shareholders into education after we paid our dividends out. And you're doing it because you're going to help the next dyslexic child, because I was dyslexic. And th the people that helped me they also were, they had to make money doing it, and I'm so glad that I met them. So the point is, you can put both a moral, social, educational mission right beside profit. We have made a big mistake in the last 10 years, vilifying capitalism. I'm one of the people that want to take that back. In, I would just say, and I don't want to get into politics here, but the last two administrations were about redistribution of wealth 
and solving for health care. And we've done a masterful job with that. It's now time to focus on what makes America work, which is business. To make it easier to start a business, sustain a business, we, get, we have to fix our corporate tax rates. The next president, he or she, this will be the primary mandate. It has to happen because we're not competitive anymore. And these things can always work together. You can do great things and make money, and the two of them can, can work hand in hand. Let's go back here uh, to the aisle there. My name is Ed. Uh, I'm a co-founder of Yoga Panda, which is a startup that helps people find yoga classes in Seattle. And my question is to Mr. Wonderful, chasing opportunity versus chasing passion. Which one do you think is more important? Well, you know, every entrepreneur I meet is very passionate. That's just part of the equation. I actually argue that what matters most is executional skills. Every entrepreneur is passionate. Everybody that's an entrepreneur is ready to, to take that journey and, and go down that road, and that's great. But the ones that are still doing it three years later have executional skills. So that's what I think matters above everything else. I meet lots of teams. I fund lots of companies. I see lots of failure and lots of successes. The difference is men and women, primarily women these days, that can really execute, that set goals, tell you what they are, talk to you every three months saying, I achieved this goal or I didn't, and why. And to me, that's the building block of a business. There's nothing worse than vision all day long. <laughs> Vision's easy. Execution is hard. <laughs> Let's go back uh, there on that side. Hi, my name is John Scrifano. I'm the CEO of Garmentory. We're a startup in Seattle. We're the Etsy for young luxury. So we're a marketplace um, for young luxury, contemporary fashion, $100 to $600 items. Um, our business is growing really well. Uh, when we talk to venture capitalists, and I talk to a lot of venture capitalists, um, I, my question specifically for you is how do... How do Excellent entrepreneurs break preconceived notions that you have and then give you what they think is actually the reality. So, for example, we're in a $40 billion market. People hear um, boutiques or contemporary fashion and they think, ah, that's a small market. But it's not a small market. So how do you, uh, what have you seen from entrepreneurs that's been really effective? If, if you want to successfully raise money, because I've heard pitches from your space a mm -hmm. hundred times now, and the, where they make a mistake every time is, what we've all learned about building that, I love that space, by the way, because yeah. what I find so remarkable about men and women that are passionate about fashion, they throw caution to the wind on price and margin. They don't give a damn. If they see something they want, they'll kill for it. And I think that's fantastic. You find that also in the marriage business, and you find it in the burial business, all three of which I invested. And so <laughs> you don't care about price when you're dead or when you're getting married. That's great. But what you never answer when you're pitching is the first question you should answer before you're even asked it is, you figured out customer acquisition costs. Because in fashion, acquiring the customer and making them loyal has, in most cases, 99% of the time, is actually more expensive than the lifetime value of the customer. And so I immediately go to that and say, what are your customer acquisition costs and what is the lifetime value, even though your business has only been around for eight months or something? And that's where I find the models broken because unless you can find a way to acquire a customer, and the ones that have been successful have, 
You think of those in the bridal business, for example, that sell dresses, rent dresses, and in groom, you know, gowns and everything else. They have found a way to get that, that equation nailed down. And anybody in here that's pitching an online business, answer that question first. The first in your deck, after you've explained what the business does, let the second slide say, customer acquisition cost lifetime value. That's how you're going to get an investor interested, that you've somehow solved for that. Everything else is secondary. So if my CAC to LTV is 40%, how do I change your mind about market size or some other thing? You don't have to change my mind about market size. That's not my number one question. Excellent. My question is sustainability of your business model. I don't care if your market's 10 billion, 1 billion, 500 million. Am I going to get, you know, sustainability to get 10%, 15% share of the market? I'm a quick study on this stuff. I can figure it out in a couple of minutes whether it's going to work or not based on your customer acquisition cost. What do you know that I don't know about getting a customer? Because I've done it in multiple sectors now. I know what works and what doesn't. The reason companies like, you know, Bottle Breacher, which makes, they take ordnance, bullets, and turn them into wedding gifts. I mean, how crazy is that? <laughs> but they know how to acquire customers, and they're wildly profitable. Same with cupcakes, same with wedding gifts. The question is, if you talk to Sarah, who runs Honey Fund, all she talks about is customer acquisition cost. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's 99.9999% of her business challenge. After that, she knows what to sell them. Thank but you. work on that. Last question goes to that one, Matt Isle. Hi, my name is Ahmad from University of Washington, and we're starting a business in uh, virtual reality education. So my question is you highlighted that team is the most thing you're you're, you will, will be investing in. What kind of characteristic or dynamic you look into the teams before you invest in a company? Oh, that's a great question and a good way to end it. So what I look for is um, teams that augment or solve for the leader's weakness. Because if you come and tell me, you're the CEO, you're the founder, you're the largest shareholder, that you know and you're perfect at everything, I know you're full of crap. That, that is so not true. Great entrepreneurs know their weaknesses and surround themselves with solutions. The logistics person, the marketing person, the accounting person, the saleswoman, the salesman. And I'll tell you guys a little secret here. When I look at new deals, existing companies, and I'm being asked to either fund with debt or equity, the first thing I do is I don't take the meeting with the CEO. I ask to go and drink good wine with the man or woman running sales. And I say, look, you know, I'm not available in that city, so I'll pay to fly her or him out to New York, and I'd like to just have dinner with them. And often the CFO was trying to broker the deal, says, no, 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 I'll come with them. I said, no, 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 no. I like to meet with the head of sales, and I, so it's just kind of a ritual, that's how I work. And good wine, I'm talking good wine, and the head of sales, and three hours, and I can tell you everything about that company. Because the head of sales knows where, the, where, where things are buried. They know where the problems are with the customer base. They know where the opportunities are. And my point is, the CEO, the next meeting is with the CEO and the CFO. And if they know less than I do about their company from the salesperson, I know who to fire when I get control of that company. And it's not the head of sales. In my companies, there's no cap on the compensation for the man or woman that runs sales, ever. They're always the highest paid person, always. And so talk about a team. You want to interview from the sales down. Without sales, you don't have a company. 
get to know the sales team, then meet the logistics people, then meet, you know, I'll tell you the truth, CEOs are fungible. You can get a new one anytime. They are the captain, and if they can't lead the ship, you got to swap them out. And I, I, I know that sounds terrible, but I help CEOs that are large shareholders get out of the way of success sometimes. I've done it multiple times now because they're not the right person. Teams, team leaders, like great quarterbacks, understand what they're not good at. There's nothing worse than an arrogant CEO that thinks they're good at everything. I just can't wait to shoot them. And on that cheerful note, <laughs> I just want to say on a personal note, Kevin and I have gotten to spend a little bit of time uh, together, and, and uh, he's the nicest shark I've ever met. I mean, th there's just no doubt about it. And I, I know he has a, a, a directness, which you can sense in this, uh, in this room today and, and you see uh, on Shark Tank. But what do your best friends do? They tell you like it is. They tell you about yourself, maybe things that you don't want to know about yourself. And that's what Kevin does uh, with respect to entrepreneurs. He tells them uh, what he sees uh, in an honest and direct way. And in that sense, he is the entrepreneur's best friend. Kevin O'Leary, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you.